What I would like to do is take you off the beaten track. So we're in this series at the moment, Summer Stories. It's wonderful. It's very relaxed. Um, everyone who's speaking, sharing a different uh, story, different character from the Bible. And the characters that I would like to share with you tonight are ones that you perhaps have not heard of before. They're in a little unknown destination that's probably easy to skip over or easy to miss. So that phrase, off the beaten track or path, we're talking about places that are unfrequented or isolated or, um, you know, out the back of nowhere, the back of beyond, you get the idea. And for me, um, when I've been travelling, whether here in Tassie or um, interstate or overseas, it's been the times when I've veered away from the main tourist route, the main tourist attractions, um, and found these off-the-beaten-track places, these little secluded places that have given me the best memories and filled me with the most excitement and provided the most joy. And um, I'd like to invite you on that journey tonight. So taking a step off the well-trodden path and exploring the rarely touched or seen sites almost always pays off, whether it be through experience or friendship or great stories or refreshment or a moment just to pause. So when I was first asked to consider who I might speak about tonight, um, my mind went straight to the tourist attractions of the Bible, so to speak. People that we hear of often and um, hear about often, like, you know, Moses or... Um, I've gone blank. Abraham, Israel, Jesus. <laughs> who said Jesus? Oh, dear. <clears throat> Peter, Paul, Isaiah, Elijah, the list goes on. And obviously, these are fantastic destinations. We stop there regularly for a reason. We stop there regularly because they've got a lot to teach us. There is a lot to learn from them. Um, and I hope that you don't feel when I say that I'm taking you off the beaten track. Don't get concerned. It's all right. It's not like we're going on a road trip and mum and dad decide that we're going to take the scenic route which is the boringest thing you've ever done in your life and you're not interested in anything that they're showing you. It's not like that, I promise. Um, so before, we go on, uh, before I go on, I'm going to show you a quick clip. Now, I created a little bit of predicament for the creative arts department when I chose these two characters to speak about tonight and I received their expected email that said, oh, Carmel, we can't find anything on them. I said, I know, but show this. So. The clip that I'm going to show you is going to give you a little bit of context for where the story takes place. So it's happening in Exodus. So check this out, and I'll be back with you in just a second. The book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, yes. and it picks up the storyline from the previous book, Genesis, which ended with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now, Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, had been elevated to second in command over Egypt, and he had saved his whole family in a famine. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt, and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass, and the story of the Exodus begins. Now, that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half, where centuries have passed, and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied, and they filled the land. 
Now, this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new Pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here Pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile River. That's where uh, the story that I'm going to share with you happens in the midst of that time in Exodus. So before I get to those two characters, let's unpack um, what's going on just a little bit. So we're going to start reading Exodus um, 1. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, comes straight after Genesis, looking um, at verse 6. It's on the screen behind me. In time, Joseph and all of his brothers died, ending that entire generation. But their descendants, the Israelites, had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so greatly that they became extremely powerful and filled the land. Eventually, a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He said to his people, Look, the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. They will escape from the country." So let's put this in context here. In Genesis, the book just before Exodus, we meet Joseph, his father Jacob. And Joseph comes into Egypt and he's shown favour from the Pharaoh. In fact, in Genesis, the Pharaoh says to Joseph about his family, choose any place in the entire land of Egypt for them to live. Give them the best land and if any of them have any special skills, put them in charge of my livestock there. The people settled, they were fruitful and their population grew rapidly. Joseph was respected by the Pharaoh, he was consulted, he was shown favour. But we fast forward approximately 400 years, as the clip said, and there's this new guy in charge. He doesn't know Joseph, he doesn't know Jacob, he doesn't know their families or what they did for the kingdom. To him, they're simply one big group of rapidly growing people who he is afraid of. So when Genesis ended, the Israelites were up here, they were elevated but this new regime doesn't want them taking over. And so the Hebrew people once felt secure, they felt safe, they felt like they had friends. Now they are in danger and their friends are becoming their enemies. So the Pharaoh and his regime begin to try and squash the Israelites. And what better way to squash people than to enslave them? Makes sense, doesn't it? Don't you do that? No? (laughs) Don't say yes, sir. So, verse 11, we read on. So, the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Pitholm and Ramses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more alarmed the Egyptians became. So, the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all of their demands. So, physical labour increases. I'm going to make you do more and more and more with the hope that therefore they stop having babies. But childbearing labour increases despite this. 
Interesting. Um, God's plan kept unfolding through his people, regardless of what the Egyptian people were doing. But you can imagine being a Hebrew person at this time, thinking to yourself, how will we ever find a way out of this? See, we've got the gift of perspective. We know that Moses is coming soon, um, but they don't. Moses eventually leads them out of slavery and out of Egypt, but he's not on the scene yet. And God appears to be potentially silent in this part of the story. So this is where I get to introduce you to our new friends. Their names, I wonder if any of you have heard of them, are Shifra and Pua. Everyone say Shifra. Shifra. Everyone say Pua. I made a joke this morning that they'd be good future child names to add to your list if you're thinking about having a baby anytime soon. Shifra and Pua. Hmm. <laughs> it's still funny. So, Shifra and Pua. Let's read about them in verse 15. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. When you help the Hebrew women as they give birth, watch as they deliver. If the baby is a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. And you think you receive difficult instructions in your life. The fate of a nation is at stake here. Humanity is at stake. These are God's chosen people that we're talking about. His purpose is to bless the world through them. And he's trying to kill them off. And just imagine being these two women for a moment. Now, the scripture doesn't give us a lot of information about them other than the fact that they are midwives. So we can assume, given the time and the way things worked back then, that perhaps they were in charge of a group of midwives, which is why Pharaoh called them to him. They potentially held some sort of authority in that area. And he was asking them to do the exact opposite of what they had been trained to do and what they had promised to do. So imagine today if the doctor was asked not to provide the life-saving medication or the surgeon told not to worry about operating and saving the life or the ambulance officer told to leave the person on the side of the road, don't worry about them, we're trying to get rid of those people, they're one of them, just leave them. So the king of Egypt is in the driver's seat here and he's calling the shots. So we read on in verse 17, but, you know our lives are full of but moments. I reckon some of you probably had some but moments at Youth Live, but God. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king's orders. They allowed the boys to live too. So the king of Egypt called the midwives. Why have you done this, he demanded. Why have you allowed the boys to live? This is a fantastic response. Uh, the Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women, the midwives replied. They are more vigorous and they have their babies quickly that we can't get there in time. Now, I'm not a midwife. I haven't had a baby. Some of you here have had babies and I'm sure that you would agree with the common consensus that they perhaps weren't telling the truth. Um, but what's great is that the Pharaoh believed them. See, they played him for the fool. He was very interested in killing the boys. He didn't care about the girls. Um, but the girls are the ones here undoing the plan. And they play right into his prejudices, into what he believes to be true of the Hebrew people. Animalistic. So it made complete sense to him that, oh, well, maybe they are more vigorous and maybe they do have their babies quicker than other people. I don't know. Um, so they used his own opinions against him and tricked him. Very cheeky. So there's a little bit of debate over whether the midwives were... Hebrew midwives or whether they were Egyptian women who were midwives to the Hebrews. 
Many scholars believe the latter, that they were Egyptian women who were midwives to the Hebrews, which can make this series of events even more profound. See, if they were Hebrew women, then of course their inclination is going to be to save their own people and save their own babies. But if they were Egyptian midwives to the Hebrews, then their position in society is a little bit different and they were disobeying their direct king. And now we see God, who some may say has been a silent part of this story so far. In verse 20 and 21, so God was good to the midwives and the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And that is where the story of Shifra and Pua ends. Technically, they receive seven verses in the whole of the Bible. Very easy to miss, very easy just to read and keep on going through. But let's stop here for a second. I love this story and I love its significance in God's bigger story. See, it's the very next verse, as the video showed us, where Pharaoh tells everyone to start throwing the um, baby Hebrew boys into the river. And we know one of those Hebrew boys is Moses, and that, again, at the hand of some very crafty women, he ends up in a basket and ends up leading the Hebrew people out of Egypt. I wonder who delivered Moses. These women literally kept the families of Israel alive. The story itself continues on to more interesting tourist destinations and more dramatic events, but that's all we know about Shifra and Pua, these two midwives, two women who feared God and outwitted the most powerful man in the land, perhaps like they were on Survivor, outwitted. So three things that I think we can learn from Shifra and Pua. I'll move through these quickly. Three things. Number one, I think we can learn from Shifra and Pua to embrace and be faithful with our just. Shifra and Pua just delivered babies. That was their job. It didn't look like the deliverance of a nation at a time. At the time, they were just delivering babies. And I wonder what your just is. How do we prove our faith in the nitty-gritty, in the day-to-day, over and over? See, every excuse was available to Shifra and Pua. At the time, it was common for babies to not make it through the birthing process. They didn't have the medical advancements that we have today, so it would have been easy for them to go along with what Pharaoh had asked them to do. But they knew who they were working for, and through embracing and being faithful with their just, they brought glory to God. So what is your just? Is it studying, being a student? Is it working in retail? Is it raising children? Is it office work? Is it driving taxis? Is it any other plethora of things that it could be? So my question for you is, have you embraced it and are you being faithful with it, with the situation that you find yourself in right now? See, I've missed plenty of opportunities in the past because I've viewed situations as a means to an end. Just need to get to the end of college and then... I just need to do this and then. I just need to do this and then. And I didn't embrace it and I wasn't faithful with my just, with my right then. So what does your 2018 just look like? Have you embraced it or do you despise it? Are you being faithful with it or are you just trying to get through it? Now for the midwives, what they needed to do was pretty obvious. Don't kill the babies, keep them alive. For us, it's different. 
It might be have the conversation. It could be say the prayer. It could be offer to do the extra work, offer to buy the coffee, be the carrier of the positive atmosphere wherever you find yourself, walk away from the gossip. And for you, it might be something different again. It's just a case of listening to the prompting of God's spirit. The second thing that I think Shifra and Pua can teach us is that we need to know who we are working for. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to do what Pharaoh had told them to do. Shifra and Pua knew who they were working for. They knew who they needed to fear. Now, this passage isn't an excuse or a free pass to ignore whatever people in authority tell us to do. You know, if my boss says, Carmel, you need to do this, I can't go, well, you're not my real boss. I'm going to go and do this instead. That's not what it's about. Um, This is a really unique circumstance. However, I think the message here is for us to realise that ultimately we need to remember that we're working for God and that he is the one we should have a holy fear of. Colossians 3 puts it beautifully. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember, the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that master you are serving is Christ. So no job is too small, no job is too menial, no job is too insignificant when we have the right motive and the right perspective as though we're working for the Lord. And when we're working like that with all of our heart, our work is transformed into an act of worship for God. And from this place, there's no room for the things that we can fill our lives with almost without realising it. There's no room for fear of man. There's no room for fear of disapproval. There's no room for people-pleasing. There's no room for being disappointed again and again and again by people because Christ is the master that we are serving. And we serve him. As we serve him, we're filled with confidence. We're filled with enthusiasm. We're filled with excitement and with a desire to see lives change. Romans 12, 11 says, Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Great words to live by. Okay, the final thing as we wrap this up that I think that Shifra and Pua can teach us is that if we fear and trust God in the face of uncertainty, he will sustain us. Shifra and Pua bear witness to the fact that when you fear God, when you trust him, when you obey him in the face of uncertainty, he will sustain you. He will encourage your faith. He will even move to bless. Many scholars tell us that the midwives in Israel were barren, unable to have children of their own. So when we read that God gave the midwives families of their own, it's not just a throwaway comment. It wasn't like he just sort of, you know, let them retire early and settle down and hop in a camper van and go travelling the countryside. It was much more profound than that. He gave them families of their own, something that they would never expect, a profound blessing for two women who had feared him above all else. So even when the wrong people are calling the shots, even when God doesn't seem visible, even when you've been tasked with the unthinkable or even when you're in a dangerous situation, time and time again in the Bible and in our lives, in the lives of people that we know, we see God sustaining his people in times of uncertainty through their faith and perseverance. 
I wonder what uncertainty you might be facing at the moment. I don't know what it is, but you know what it is, and God knows what it is as well. The encouragement that these characters give us is to continue to fear and trust God in the face of our uncertainty because he is a good God and he will sustain us in the midst of our triumphs and our trials because the God of this story and the God of all of the other stories in the Bible that we're hearing about is the same God of our story. And you know, God's not looking for squeaky clean, perfect kind of people to do that either. He's just looking for willing people. Shifra and Pua were just midwives, just doing their job, but they surrendered to him. And there's a beautiful quote that sums that up, I think. It says, God is not looking for gold vessels or silver vessels. He's looking for yielded vessels or willing vessels. So, May 2018, we're almost a month through. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? February, who goes back to school this week? Oh, look at you tentatively raising your hands, you poor things. So may 2018 be a year where we embrace and are faithful with our just. May it be a year when we know who we're working for. May it be a year where we fear and trust God in the face of uncertainty. And may it be a year where we take a step off the well-trodden path to pause, to reflect, to refresh, to gain encouragement and to seek the face of God.